It is Mother's Day. You guys really did it this year. I've noticed that you all went out and bought corsages to give to your <laughs> sweethearts and mothers. Well done, gentlemen. Well done. It's our ministry philosophy here to keep the men of the church out of trouble at home. And No, I really appreciate Judy Astadurian and Children's Ministries for, for doing that. It's a nice gift. This has been a week of medical reports, it seems. Tuesday night at our elders' meeting, as we regularly do, pray for the needs of this congregation, among other things. And it seemed as though Tuesday evenings time of prayer had a medical list an arm long. There were just so many people in need. So much physical pain and suffering. It seemed like there was just a particular emphasis or whatever this past week. You know, sickness, disease, deformity, a reality of the human condition. You don't have to live very long in this world. You don't have to travel very far to see it, do you? Sooner or later, all of us experience a measure of brokenness in our bodies. <laughs> Things just don't work like they used to, do they? Pain becomes kind of our constant companion. You know, the older I get, the more I recognize that fact. You can probably tell somebody's age by looking in the medicine chest in their bathroom and seeing the number of liniments and pain remedies that they have stored up there as they try to get relief. You know, the mind is willing, but the flesh is weak, isn't it? Hmm? And it's not just that, is it? There is death. Death is coming to all of us. They say there's two things that are sure in life, death and taxes. I don't know about taxes, I suppose that's true, but, but death I'm positive about. It is coming to all of us. James says in chapter 4 and verse 14, he says, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. James likens our lives to the steam that hovers above a cup of hot coffee. It is there only momentarily, and then it is gone. Perhaps reflecting on such things, it leads Solomon to say in Ecclesiastes that it is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. It's a good thing to go to a funeral, Solomon says, and to be reminded that someday that's where you're going to end up. Your body's going to end up lying there too. It brings a certain soberness to our lives, doesn't it? Helps to put things into perspective. What is the source of all this misery? Why is it that physical brokenness is the common experience that comes to all of us? Why is it that none of us can escape the grave? 
You know the answer to that, don't you? We've all contacted a fatal disease, haven't we? We contacted it actually at conception. That fatal disease is called sin. We all have a lethal dose of it. Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 5 and in verse 12, reflecting on just that and, and really pointing out the reality that sin is the common experience of all of us. He says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. The Apostle Paul says, you want to know that you're a sinner? Do you want indisputable proof of that fact? You will die. That is your proof. God said to Adam, in the day you eat of the fruit, you will what? You will surely die. And as the children of Adam, you will surely die. You will surely die. All that is except one. Hmm? One man has conquered death. The God-man, Jesus Christ. He rose from the dead. Amen? He holds the keys of death and life. Open your Bibles to John chapter 5. Our detour into the topic of worship that sprang out of chapter 4 has ended. We are rejoining the main thoroughfare of John's gospel. How's that? There was a natural break in John's gospel at the end of chapter 4, and that's why we went back and did that little mini-series on worship, but we are entering back now in to John's Gospel. We're going to be looking this morning at the first nine verses, really the first eight and a half verses of chapter 5 in John's Gospel. We're going to see a very significant healing miracle here. And as we examine this miracle of, hearing, of healing in the process, we're going to make three observations Three observations regarding Jesus' healing of this crippled man. And in the process, we're going to recognize Jesus' power over the human condition. Hmm? Three observations from this text so that we recognize that Jesus holds the power over the human condition. The condition in which we all find ourselves to one degree or another. It's a simple outline. Verses 1 through 5, we're going to see a, a man's pathetic condition. A man's pathetic condition. Then in verses 6 and 7, we're going to see Jesus' peculiar question. Then verses 8, in the first part of verse 9, we're going to see Jesus' potent command. So it's a simple outline. A pathetic condition, a peculiar question, and a potent command. Take a look here with me at verse 1 in chapter 5. Now after these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered waiting for the moving of the waters. 
For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. And a certain man was there who had been 38 years in his sickness. John says, after these things, it's kind of a non-specific phrase indicating a passage of time. There has been some passage of time since the end of chapter 4 and in verse 54. In fact, when we last left Jesus in chapter 4, he was in Galilee. You see that in verse 54. And so now he, we find him here in Jerusalem. It says after these things, after a passage of time, there was a feast of the Jews. John doesn't tell us which feast it is. He leaves it indefinite. Commentators have spilt a lot of ink and chopped down a lot of trees talking about which feast this might be. But there is no conclusive evidence about it. It's, it's just not revealed to us what feast it is. But it was one of the feasts that would call Jesus as a good and faithful Jew up to Jerusalem. You know, if John wanted us to know what feast it was, you look over here in chapter 6 and verse 4, he doesn't have any trouble telling you the name of a feast if he wants you to know it. You see there in verse 4, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So if John wanted us to know what feast it was, he would have told us. But he, he gives it to us here to explain why Jesus now goes back into Jerusalem back into the midst of the part of the nation that is most hostile to him, back into the midst of those that really have the ability to, to uh, crucify him ultimately, it was a feast that drew him back. And so he went up to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast, verse 1. Now, John tells us, there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, which is just one of the gates into the temple complex, kind of the north, northern part of the complex there, called a sheep gate. It's just a, a gate by which they would bring the sheep into the temple area for sacrifice. Thousands of sheep had to be brought in and out. Well, they all came in and none went out. They had to be brought into that temple area, and there, there had to be a logistical way to do this, and so there was a gate to bring them in. So it's just a sort of a marker of... Of location, he says near there there is a pool. Certain pools, actually two pools. There were actually two pools there. These particular pools are surrounded by what's called a colonnade or a, a portico. Really, these long, narrow buildings surrounded these two pools, and they would be open on the side that faced to the water, and then there was one more in between that was open on both sides. And so that's the five porticos, the four sides and the one through the middle. And there are these two pools that are referred together here as a pool. These, um, these particular pools were a place where the sick would come. The porticos were there to protect them from the elements as they lay there next to these pools. It would keep the inclement weather, the hot sun, the rain, whatever, would keep them off the people as they sat around these pools. These pools were like massive wading pools, like big public pools, perhaps with patio covers, if you will, around them. They're on the north side of the temple area. They're called in Hebrew, it says, Bethesda, it means house of mercy. 
There are five of these porticos or covered dwellings or structures around these pools. Verse 3. And inside these structures lay a multitude. Do you see that? A multitude of broken humanity. Those that were sick, those that were blind, those that were lame, those that were withered. Word translated withered here, a Greek word, could mean dry or shriveled up or shrunken. The broken contingent of humanity lay around these pools. You can imagine the hygiene conditions that would exist in an environment like this. People whose bodies are deformed and broken, unable really to care for themselves as you and I are able, simple hygiene, neglected, must have been a tremendous stench. The sight of all of these people laying there, it was not a pretty place to go. It was not a pleasant place to visit. It was the outcast. It was the, the, the part of humanity that people wanted to keep at a distance. They didn't want any part of them. Kind of reminds me sometimes when you visit a nursing home. Maybe you've experienced that. You, you walk into a nursing home, many of them, you walk through the front doors and there's a smell that sort of assaults you when you go through the door. You know that you're in a different kind of place where there are hurting and broken people. It's really a collection here, John tells us, of the cast-offs of humanity. Not only are they broken physically, but we see further that they are bound by a superstitious belief that the waters of these public pools would deliver them from from their miseries. They are laying there helpless, waiting for somebody or something to help them out. Day after day, they lay there. Perhaps they're dropped off in the morning by a family member or a friend. Perhaps they lay there day after day and night after night. We don't know. But there they are, waiting in vain for some miraculous relief. You know, when you are sick, I mean really sick, or when you are in pain, you will do almost anything to find relief, won't you? Hmm? Doesn't it almost become the driving, consuming passion of your life? I've got to have some help. People will exhaust all means at their disposal to find some measure of relief. They will burn through their meager resources. They will chase around for the latest cure. Doctor after doctor Specialist after specialist, friends, family members. Everybody has a helpful suggestion. I think it's this reason that faith healers have such a following. hmm? How is it that they're able to attract such a large crowd? I I think the answer is simple. Hurting people desperately want relief. They desperately want relief and... And so like these poor people, they day after day come back. Despite the fact that 
nothing ever seems to happen. There's no credible evidence in the case of faith healers that there's anything significant going on there, but, but suffering is real, suffering is intense, suffering is common to us all, and people will chase after help. If you've not yet experienced that, you will. You will, it's coming. Look here at the end of verse 3 and then into verse 4. Hopefully your Bible has some sort of an indication here, perhaps brackets or something, to indicate to you that the rest of the, the end of verse 3 and all of verse 4 is a, is a verse that has some manuscript problems associated with it. I mean by that is most of the early and best manuscripts, Greek manuscripts that stand behind this English translation don't contain these, this, these verses, or this verse and plus a little. Most of the textual scholars believe that this was really a marginal note written in by a scribe early on to help explain why people were there. Look down at verse 7 and talks about a stirring up of the water. That is part of the text. And so I think what happened is uh, some scribe somewhere along the way made a marginal note sort of explaining uh, what was commonly known at the time, the historical detail of why people would wait by these pools. That's a good question, isn't it? Why in the world would you wait 38 years beside a waiting pool in Jerusalem? The answer is that they believed that something miraculous could happen there, that somehow they would get relief. says in verse 4 that they thought an angel would come down and would stir the waters periodically and the first one into the waters would be healed of whatever affliction or disease that they had. And, and so this crew of broken humanity, blind people, sick people, lame people, shrunken and withered people, all frantically scrambling and clawing their way towards the water, trying to get relief. Why people believe this Superstition is hard to say. What caused the stirring of the water even? It appears to be a well-known and common fact that it was stirred. Some suggest that there was underground springs beneath these pools that intermittently would bubble up and cause the water to be stirred. Perhaps some of those underground springs contained iron salts, which are generally considered beneficial for healing. We have our own hot springs, don't we? Places where people will go to soak, try to relieve, find some relief from their misery. In fact, some ancient witnesses speak of a redness to the water that had sort of a red hue to the water. And if that's so, that would perhaps be consistent with the idea that there were minerals in the water that would bubble up, perhaps iron even, and would give it that red hue. How the rumor began, we don't know. Maybe somebody bathed in this pool and afterwards they felt better and perhaps even God somehow reached out and did some sort of miraculous healing to them. Whatever happened, it began. And, and it wouldn't take long, would it, for that kind of a, of a rumor to get started, for people to start flocking to that area. If you found out that you could have relief by attending such and such a hot spring, you'd flock there, wouldn't you? And so multitudes evidently came to these pools and maybe somewhere along the way a benefactor donated some money to build these buildings to shelter these people and keep them out of the elements. We, we don't really know, but, but somehow this grew up outside the city. 
Verse 5. There was a certain man was there 38 years in his sickness. Jesus enters this place from the text it appears that he's alone. His disciples are not with him. And he walks into this mass of broken humanity and he picks out one individual. One invalid from among the multitudes. A man who had been there 38 years. Kind of interesting. It's, it's such a short, terse account. But, I mean, a question that came to my mind as I read this almost immediately was, why him? Why not another? Why did Jesus pick out this man? What was so special about this man that would cause Christ to enter into the multitudes of humanity and, and draw this one out and grab this man? The answer is, there is no reason given, is there? By Christ's sovereign choice, He entered in and chose out this man. A man who has no evidence of faith in his life. We, if you finish reading this account, there is nowhere it talks about him becoming a follower of Christ. In fact, just the opposite. It, he tries to turn Jesus into the authorities. There's not even a lot of gratitude involved. Nothing within this man's character or nature would appear to attract Christ to him. Of all the mass of broken humanity, he is not the best case. He is not the most eligible to be healed. Yet Christ enters in. Picks him out. In fact, if you look at verse 14, it says, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple, and he said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin any more, so that nothing worse may befall you. It appears to indicate from the text that his problems are the result of sin in his life. So if you were to enter into such a place, and, beloved, I would venture to guess that most of us would not. But if you were to enter into such a place, he would probably be the last one you would pick out. He's by all measure a truly pathetic individual. He's desperately in need of assistance. So Jesus asks him a question. Verse 6. Have you ever been asked a question before that just sort of seems out of place? Has that ever happened to you? You ever been asked a question whose answer is so obvious you might classify it as a stupid question? Hmm? A number of years ago, my father-in-law was working on his car and he had the hood up and he was bent over the engine working on it and his daughter sitting out there watching him, and as he was working away, he, he stood up to get a, a tool, and he banged his head on the latch that holds the hood down and cut his head, and there was blood coming down his face. And you can imagine he wasn't really very happy about that. And his daughter said to him, uh, Did you hit your head, Dad? And that was just a stupid question, wasn't it? Or maybe you've heard the one about the fellow who pulls into the service station. He's got a flat tire in his car. The service station attendant comes out and says, you got a flat? He says, no, I was just driving down the street and all of a sudden the other three tires all swelled up. <laughs> I mean, at first glance, the question here in 
verse 6 looks a lot like that kind of question, doesn't it? A question that is obvious in its answer. But it's not. But it's not. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? I mean, the answer to that question first would be what? Of course! Why do you think I'm here? But really, this question has at least three objectives, I think, that are related to it. First, by asking the question, it draws the man's attention to Jesus. It fixes the man's attention on Christ. He turns and he looks to the one who is asking him this question. Second, it really draws out the man's own perception of what his problem is. What is the obstacle that keeps him from getting well? Down at verse 7, he says, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool. This man's problem from his point of view, the obstacle to his health from his point of view, is the fact that there is nobody to put him into the water. And so the question draws that out. The third thing it does is really kind of related to that. It reveals his impotence to do anything to help himself. You see, there's nobody to put me into the water, he says. He comes to the water every day for 38 years. 38 years. He knows no other way, no other means. He comes here hoping somebody will help the man. He needs help from somebody greater than himself. Somebody who can overcome his infirmity. And the question really draws that out of him. By doing this, by asking this question, Christ really draws out this man to reveal what's in his heart and what, our, what his true need is. He is hopeless. He is helpless. How appropriate that he's laying in a place called the House of Mercy. Hmm? Sick man answered in verse 7, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. He's been trying to drag himself across broken humanity, claw his way to the water, so to speak. He admits that there's nobody there to help him. None of the others that are there will give way before him, will they? So he's caught in this endless cycle of futility. The water is periodically stirred and he claws his way towards it. Before he can get there, somebody else gets there. And he's stuck again. So he waits and he waits. It's an endless cycle of futility in his life. So Jesus speaks to him, verse 8. Jesus speaks to him a potent command. Jesus said to him, Arise, take up your pallet, and walk. It's incredible. Jesus says to him, 
Do the impossible. Stand up. Pick up your little straw bed. Roll it up. Throw it over your shoulder. Walk. Immediately. Verse 9. You see that? Immediately what happens? The man becomes well. Picks up his pallet and begins to walk. In that command was all the power necessary to fulfill it. Jesus supplied him with the power to believe and to obey. It's just like his word to Lazarus later in John's Gospel in chapter 11. Jesus spoke to Lazarus and he said, Lazarus, what? Come forth. And the dead man came forth. Jesus' word always contains sufficient power to accomplish it. That is so important. That is so important. For us who are believers, the Scriptures are full of commands to us, are they not? Full of, of things, precepts that we should do in our lives, and in them are, contains the power to do them. This is a hard miracle. This is one of Jesus' hard miracles. And it demonstrates His control over disease and consequently over sin. 38 years. That's a long time to lay there, deformed. This is not some simple type miracle. This is not a healing of a bad back or a lengthening of a short leg or, or the relief of some sort of migraine headaches or as I saw somebody on TV just a week or so ago touching people's throats and healing their thyroid problems. This is a man who has been 38 years in his withered, shrunken state. And with a word, with a word he is healed. In a similar healing miracle that Mark reports that occurred up in Capernaum, Jesus healed a paralytic. In Mark chapter 2, in fact, you can turn there. We've got time. Go to Mark chapter 2 and verse 9. Jesus makes the point clearly there, but the point is the same over in John's Gospel. We should see it there. Mark chapter 2 and beginning in verse 9. Jesus says, Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Arise and take up your pallet and walk? What's the answer? Which is easier to say to somebody? Your sins are forgiven. That's the easy thing to say. Why? Because you can't prove it in this life. There's no proof for it. But in order, verse 10, that you may know 
that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, take up your pallet and go home. And he rose and immediately took up the pallet and went out in the sight of all so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Immediately, back to John's Gospel, the man became well. Immediately, the man became well. The cure was instantaneous. The cure was complete. There was no limp afterwards. There were no crutches, no atrophied muscles, no need for physical therapy, just full coordination and stamina. When I was in high school, I broke my hand playing lacrosse, and it had to be casted and slung for a while. It did not take very long at all before that immobile arm began to experience the atrophying of the muscles. They became weak and flabby, and the hand lost strength and coordination. That was only a matter of six weeks. Thirty-eight years. We don't know whether he was born this way or not, I suspect not because of what's said in verse 14. But in any case, 38 years in this condition. And Jesus speaks to him and bang, he stands up and walks away. This miracle was open. This miracle was public. This miracle was accomplished without a controlled setting. This miracle was instantaneous. This miracle was performed by a word. This miracle fully restored an organic malady. This was not the stuff that you would see on Channel 40. This is a real healing miracle. And this miracle illustrates Christ's miracle ministry. Jesus healed with a word or a touch. Fully, completely, instantly, organic problems. As I said, he never lengthened a short leg. He never healed a bad back. He never dealt with a migraine headache. No, his were restoring sight to the blind, putting ears back on people who had them recently severed, restoring withered limbs, healing leprosy, and of course, raising the dead. For anyone steeped in the Old Testament, To witness this kind of a miracle, their mind would immediately reflect back to Isaiah the prophet. They would remember that Isaiah the prophet said that in the days of the Messiah that the lame would leap like a deer. And they would ask themselves, is this the one? Who else can heal a man 38 years in this condition? Beloved, this story illustrates well the condition which some of you find yourselves in this morning. You are like that paralytic man. You are unable to help yourself. You are caught in an endless cycle of futility as you try to deal with your own guilt before God. Let me apply this text to you. Do you wish to get well? 
Do you wish to get well? Do you wish to experience eternal life? Do you wish to shed the guilt of your pain and sin? If so, there are some things you need to know. There's some questions that need to be answered for you, and so let me ask and answer those questions. Brothers and sisters, pray with me as we talk about these things. What is eternal life? What is eternal life? The Bible says that eternal life is a relationship with the God of the universe. John chapter 17 and verse 3, this is eternal life. That you may know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. Eternal life is a free gift. Well, like any gift, you have to accept it. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why don't people have eternal life? Man is a sinner. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Man can't save himself from his sin. He's like this paralytic. He is unable to crawl to the saving waters. Titus 3.5, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. People don't have eternal life because they are, they are sinners and they are unable to do anything about it on their own. What happens to sinners? All sinners go to hell. That's what happens. All sinners go to hell. Second Thessalonians. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. All who do not know God. But sinners don't have to go to hell. Sinners do not have to go to hell. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, the Lord is not slow about His promises as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Sinners do not have to go to hell. God has done something for you. What has He done? He became a man. The Word became flesh and dwelt among you. God became a man, and then that God-man, Jesus Christ, willingly gave Himself to die on a cross for you. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates His own love toward us, and that yet while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So what must a sinner do? How do I now receive this gift of eternal life? You must repent of your sin. You must repent of your sin. You must turn from your sin. Acts chapter 17 and verse 30. God is now declaring to all men that all people everywhere should repent. It's as simple as that. 
you must repent. And then you must receive the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Turn from yourself. Turn from your impotence. Turn from your 38 years. And turn to Christ. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever should believeth in Him should not perish, but should have everlasting life. Do you wish to get well? Do you wish to get well? Or is it your desire to remain in your brokenness, laying beside the pool of futility, relying on your own self-effort to deal with your problems? We're going to sing here momentarily, and that will close our time together, Greg. What I'm going to do, I want to do something different this morning than I have ever done here before. And I'm going to, I'm going to go over here. See this door right over here by this cross? There's a prayer room there. I feel compelled this morning, and that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go over there, and I'm going to wait in that prayer room. Because I want to talk to you. There is somebody here this morning, or somebody's here this morning. In a crowd this size, we know it to be true. That are without Christ. We have prayed for you this morning. We began early this morning praying that the Spirit of God would open your eyes to the truth. That you would be tired of the futility of your life and that you would want to deal with your position before God. And I want to help you with that. So I'll be waiting over there. I want you to come afterwards and you come talk to me and let's, let's open the Scriptures together that you might enter into life Let me pray. God, our Father, a simple story about a powerful and profound miracle. How the Lord Jesus Christ, in His earthly ministry, reached out to touch and heal a broken man. A man without hope, a man trapped in an endless cycle of futility, a man whose body was broken and unfit for any good use. And Lord God, by analogy, that's where all who are without Christ this morning, that's the condition in which they find themselves. For they are spiritually broken. The scriptures say they are spiritually dead and desperately in need of help. Lord God, may your Holy Spirit move in their hearts. For the scripture says, do not delay. Today is the day of salvation. We thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen.